the thing that has grabbed my interest the most as details have emerged is their front wing flap design because it is the only really brand new thing in terms of ideas. Hello and welcome back to the Silver Arrows podcast for the 2024 Formula One season. My name is Ben Tinsley, your host for the year, as we buckle up, ready to track every twist and turn of the Mercedes-AMG Formula One team. Listeners who joined us last year will know that the Silver Arrows podcast is not just about the roar of engines and the rush of adrenaline. It's a journey into the strategy room, the pit lane, and the minds of the brilliant people shaping the destiny of this team. And in this episode, we're joined by two people passionate about F1 tech to discuss the work some of those very talented people have been busy with over the last nine months or so, as we study the Mercedes car for this year, the brand new and innovative W15. As you listen, you'll notice there's an elephant in the room. In this episode, we stick exclusively to technology and design. There's no mention of Lewis's Ferrari move or any of the ramifications that that creates. And that's deliberate because rest assured that's something we're going to have plenty of time to be discussing and covering in detail over the coming weeks and episodes. But for now, we hope you enjoy learning about the innovative and exciting glimpses we see in the W15 before it hits the track for winter testing. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So joining us to help us do that, we have aerospace engineer Bryson Sullivan. Bryson, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. And Matt Trumpets of Mist Apex fame. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Pretty good, thank you. Glad that F1 is back, uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's let's start perhaps, Matt, with you. Uh, we obviously had our first glimpse of the uh, W15 on Wednesday here in the UK. I'm not sure what day that was over with you guys in America, but... Just cast your eyes back to um, before that launch and perhaps what you were expecting Mercedes to show us on Wednesday and then perhaps talk to us about what they actually released and maybe some of the differences. Um, Okay. Well, I think the very obvious thing that everybody expected um, was a reset of the upper side impact spar 
because that had been the proverbial thorn in Mercedes paw the last the last season when they switched and added the the side pods. It just simply didn't work with really what they wanted to accomplish. So where they decided to put that and how they decided to use it was, I think, probably a main focus of, of anyone in in the technical community. But then obviously along with that, you knew that they had committed to an entirely different plan than they had the previous season because they weren't happy with that either. So for me, I, I do less guessing and I, I just I'm curious to see what they come they have come up with. And there's some small changes and some big changes. I think the the really big one is of the two really big ones is is the rear suspension. And and I mentioned this in particular because they switched from their standard pull rod suspension to a push rod, which now means that only Ferrari and Haas are sticking with the pull rod concept. Eight of the 10 teams have converged on this solution that was pioneered really by Red Bull for this regulation set. But the thing that has grabbed my interest the most as details have emerged is their, is their front wing flap design because it is the only really brand new thing in terms of ideas that we have seen. And we don't know yet if they're going to run it, if this is just an FIA ploy. But if they run it and if they try and use it like a similar, in a similar fashion to the previous regulation set, it could be a real game changer for everybody. And Bryson, what is it about um, the front wing that is so innovative and perhaps sneaky on the behalf of other teams? Yes, I, I love the design being sneaky. That's always uh, very fun. I, I think... Perhaps in, in retrospect, we really shouldn't be surprised that this Mercedes has kind of created this innovation. If you think back to Austin 2022, they brought the aerodynamic slot gap separators to their front wing that was never really raced, but was brought. It was a very innovative solution that Ferrari used that in 2023. They were also the first ones to, to cut away the rear corner of the transition from the front wing to the front wing end plate. So they, their front wing aero department is actually very innovative and has been doing some really interesting things. So it's not a total surprise, but they'd be the first to try this new direction. What we're really talking about is in the FIA regulations to try to minimize the dirty air of the car coming behind and to reduce vortices that can cause disruptions. They want to make sure that every one of the four elements of the front wing joins the nose cone directly as opposed to having only the main plane joining the nose cone and then two or three you know secondary flaps with a sharp transition and loading that would span vortices you know downstream and what's interesting about it is the y250 vortex the famed y250 vortex um, that trumpet is mentioning that actually was almost an unintentional outgrowth of an original attempt to change the ability of the cars to overtake each other with the 2009 regulations. And when the aerodynamicists realized how powerful that vortex actually was, they've been exploiting it for years, <laughs> ever since then. <laughs> and so essentially, from an aerodynamic sort of one-on-one -on -one perspective, the more discontinuously you can change the loading of the wing across the span, sort of the less gradually you can do it, the more vorticity you will shed downstream. And if you can do that all at one point, it will shed a vortex very powerfully downstream. Now, that will create drag in almost every situation, but it could have a net benefit if you're using that vortex downstream for whatever you want to use it for. So Mercedes's innova innovation, it's certainly a navigation around the spirit of the regulations. 
But the way they're maintaining the letter of the regulations is instead of the fourth flap going to essentially zero chord, you know, as a, at, the, at the inboard part, it's this very, very tiny sliver. Um, we might even call it a legality wire that technically connects a fourth element to the nose as per the regulations. But aerodynamically speaking, it's more like a, a, a three and a half or a 3.1 uh, element front wing with the discontinuity in the loading at, around where Y250 used to be. So we'll see how it performs, but it's certainly very innovative, as Trumpets mentioned. Okay, so there's two things there that I'd want to dig into. I think uh, trumpets. Firstly, it would be really good to talk about what is the Y250 vortex and and why it's so significant. But also, this is the is it the third year of these regulations? So why is it only now that Mercedes have worked out a way that they can do it? And is there significance in the fact that they're looking to do it? Um, well, I will work backwards. Is there significance in the fact they're looking to do it? Uh, there are two fundamental reasons we are seeing this design. Number one, they want to forestall anyone else from pursuing it, and they're hoping the FIA will bring down the ban hammer before the start of the season. <laughs> and, um, you know, Mercedes has certainly pioneered a lot of technology, DOS, Brick, that has been banned by the FIA, although usually... You're, usually they will give you half a season or a season with it before they take it away. So so they might get away with it for a season. But uh, Bryson said skirting the regulations. No, this is a thumb directly in the eye of the FIA's intent. The whole point of the FIA regulations was to take what used to be what we call outwash, which ruined, made it harder and harder and harder for the trailing car to follow and overtake and turn it very much into upwash. But the teams never forget what works. So they've spent this whole regulation set trying to take that upwash and turn it back into outwash. The connection at the front wing in plate that Bryson mentioned, that's what that's all about. Those turning vanes that were also flap connectors, that's what that's all about. The entire intent of every team has been to recreate what they already know works within the rules that they have. But there's a limit to what they could do because the regulations, broadly speaking, worked the way the FIA intended. If this works like the previous Y250 Vortex worked, it will snake underneath and back of the uh, front wheels, which is where you find the single biggest point of drag because of the turbulence it creates. And it will move that outwards, run it down the side of the car, and you, it will not only reduce drag, but as Bryson said, it will make every downstream piece of furniture more efficient and work better. So, so if it works like that, it, it potentially is a real game changer in terms of the performance of their package. Mm. And, and obviously efficiency was a big issue with the W13 and the W14, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the second part of your question is it might be too expensive or complicated. So it, it can always be, it can, or it could be a feint for the opponents, but I don't think that's the case. I think, I think this, is, this is something that they're really going to try and make work. And I think they see it as, um, you know, it's silver arrows. It's a silver arrow against the opposition. Nobody else has this. And because the entire rest of your downstream package is dependent on what happens at that front wing, Anyone who wanted to copy it, it will take some time to implement. So if it works, they have a 
they have a built-in time advantage where no one else will have it but them. Oh, that's really interesting because I think if you listen to people on social media and perhaps experts uh, in the media, people seem to think that actually a front wing, it's fairly easy to to replicate that. But I think what you're saying is actually the all the bits behind the car are built off that as well. So it might just seem great you can bolt on a new front wing uh, in a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but actually to really maximize it, you've got to work on the car beyond that. Is that right, Bryson? Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I think we don't often appreciate how bi-directional this is. It's certainly true that there's a huge amount of influence from the front wing to everything else downstream behind the car, but this isn't supersonic flow. This is subsonic flow. Information can propagate upstream as well as downstream. So even things that you do behind the front wing are going to influence how the front wing works and the diffuser, how that works affects other things as well. One of the reasons why the side pods have been such an important talking point this season or this in the set of regulations is precisely because we don't have barge boards anymore. We don't have the Y250 normally, the Vortex anymore. All this out wash that trumpets is talking about teams trying to create they have to find new ways to do it and so the side pod even though its principal function is to you know produce cooling air to be able to cool the engine it has a huge aerodynamic effect and again it's not the entirety of a concept of the side pod i'm not going to fall into that trap but it is an important thing and being able to produce that outwash without the y250 vortex without barge boards has been a challenge and the side pod's been a part of that if mercedes can you know, build on that with the front wing design. That's great. But as I mentioned, what's what's spawning that vortex is a, a discontinuous change in the span wise loading. That's not something that's easy to tailor or to, you know, refine. If you look at Mercedes's front wing design, you know, pre-Silverstone and after Silverstone, it was far more uniform distribution across the span. What we've seen from them this this at this launch, not only with the discontinuity there, but the the spoon shaped uh, center section and the floating first element of their front wing now, which is a reversal of what they've been doing previously, it, it's all new for them. So this is actually a really exciting time for Mercedes. I think that's a really good point that you make there. There is a lot of innovation in this car. I think a lot of people were expecting almost a RB19 copy, but there is a lot of stuff going on that car that people didn't perhaps expect. I was just going to say, if there's one other thing that I could add that maybe is uh, not an RB19 clone, but a, a, a gesture in the direction of something more Red Bull did, that would actually be the engine cover of the W15. We saw last year, last year's W14 had these huge hulking shoulders, you know, the gullies behind the, behind the halo that was directing sort of dirty air into that slot gap sort of between the rear wing and the beam wing. That's interestingly, Red Bull seems to have been, uh, have, have uh, some interest in this season, but Mercedes has actually gone in the opposite direction. Mercedes has actually, so far, reduced the depths of those gullies now. And so now their engine cover is more of a horizontal shelf as opposed to having those channels there. So certainly not an RB19 clone by any stretch, but you can see the evolution of thinking as time has gone on. And a detail that I would love to throw in at this point, because side pods have been brought up, is the fact that we have um, three different, amongst Ferrari, Red Bull, and Mercedes, we have three entirely different approaches to the side pod inlet, which I think for the third year of a fairly tight set of regulations, it's great to still see that much difference in engineering approach in the top teams. And we've not got to the rear suspensions yet, but Mercedes has come up with its entirely own 
side pod in, inlet that uh, I think Summers is calling the the P inlet because it looks kind of like the letter P. And um, it's obviously going to be engineered to work with everything in front of it, but it's Mercedes has always been um, very marginal on cooling, often to the point where it has been a performance restrictor. And I'm I'm interested to see if this new inlet design helps them address that without having to open up more of the bodywork further downstream, which adds a lot of drag to the car. Yeah, so we're talking about drag and efficiency, aren't we? Really, and what? Let's try and quantify that in some way. You're mentioning the significance of the Y250 Vortex, and I, I know it's really, really hard. But if this is something Mercedes have nailed, how much time does that release to them? How much lap time is that going to take away? Well, I'm going to be honest. I brought Bryson along for the math, man. That's his, that's his gig. <laughs> and, and I will always be honest when people ask me these types of things. Like, oh, how, how much is that little <laughs> cutout worth? How much is this little thing? How many tenths? And I'm like, if I knew that, I would. the only way to really know that is to have access to the CFD. You give me access to the CFD, show me some pressure distributions and some velocity profiles, and I can make a calculation as to how much it actually <clears> changed. All that we can say from the outside is quantitative or qualitatively, what type of flow structures do we expect to see as a result of this change, and, and where do they expect to go? One thing that we mentioned because of this change in the, in the loading distribution, the wing is very unloaded now in the center. One of the consequences of that, on top of the discontinuity spawning a Y250-ish vortex is unloading the wing near the center actually gives you a cleaner flow path to the floor. It actually allows you to have a, a less tortuous path from the front of the car to where the entrance to the floor is. And even though we see that the, the floor is, of course, very wide and has these wide you know, uh, uh, guide vanes in the front of it, the part of the flow that actually makes it to the diffuser in the center of the floor and the real you know, part of it is doing a lot of work towards the center and, and the back of the floor is a very narrow band of airflow very close to the nose, at least in straightforward conditions. And so it's really only the air that's inside of the center line and that very first turning vane in the front of the floor that actually is going all the way back. And so there could be secondary and tertiary effects associated with improving the airflow of the, of the floor itself on top of the front wing. This is why quantifying how much time it's worth is, is difficult. And even your, your question of drag, that's also difficult because you might say, okay, well, the W14 and W13 had drag problems historically. But is that just baseline drag, profile drag from just the, the body being too bulky and not tight enough? Or is this induced drag as a consequence of having to run too much rear wing to overcompensate for your floor not working as well as it should? So if your floor works as well as it should, you should have you know a greater percentage of your downforce created by the floor, which is clean downforce as opposed to dirty downforce. You could hit exactly the same downforce targets and have less drag, all because your front wing is working differently, allowing your floor to work better. So this is this is the definition of a multivariate problem of an optimization. It's very difficult to perturb one variable and say, aha. This is exactly how much lap time you'll gain. What I will say is they would not have invested this much time and effort researching it and certainly would not have built it unless they thought there was a performance gain there. So I'm very excited to see what they come up with. Uh, so like, man, that just made my brain go pop, pop, fizz, fizz. Listen to you talk about that. Uh, a couple of things I, I, I want to point out. First of all, this vortex we're discussing in the old regulation set, you had all the elements 
contributing to it. Here you only have the top element. So it's not going to be the same strength, I don't believe, as the ones that we saw in the previous regulation set. That said, um, and this is something that, that we were sort of discussing before the show, the front wheels are the single biggest contributor to drag on a Formula One car. So any change you make there is, is, is going to have a much bigger multiplier effect than it will on other parts of the car. So I want to throw that in there. But you, you mentioned cleaner flow to the floor. And one thing that occurred to me and, and that we've discussed, especially with regards to the shape of the Red Bull floor, is that a huge problem for these ground effect cars isn't just getting air to the Venturi tunnels. It's managing the flow, the mass flow of air into it so that you don't get discontinuities in handling. And a thing we've seen at least four teams mention specifically is more predictable handling, especially at the rear axle. So if you are managing the mass flow of air into your venturi tunnels and into your diffuser so that you don't get stalls, mini stalls, along the way as you hit different speeds or different yaw angles, you get a much more predictable overall platform. And here we get into the incredibly important thing of driver confidence. Because if I'm a driver, and I, I've had this discussion with, with drivers, I'm not a driver, trust me. Well, I mean, I do drive on the road, but <laughs> if I'm a driver and I turn in and I get a snap and I don't get it and then I get it again. I'm going to have to adjust how I drive into a turn. Now, your average Formula One track has got 14 to 23 turns. But let's go with 10 because that's a number that I can manage in my head. If I'm losing five hundredths of a second per turn, that's half a second a lap. And we saw, so if your driver isn't able to confidently take that platform to its edge, you're losing huge chunks of time through turns. And that, and that is and something, the, sorry, yeah. that, that is something that Lewis obviously spoke about last year in relation to the positioning of the cockpit being very far forward and feeling the rear axle. So that's, I'm sure, something that they've, they've worked really hard on. And hopefully, like you say, we can, we can begin to see those gains compound. I was just going to say that's a completely uh, valid point. Not only was it the case that, as, as uh, Trump was saying, the driver's job is to find the limit and hold the limit. They need to know what the limit is in, in, a, in a really precise way to be able to maximize lap time. And you can do that through aerodynamics, which is, of course, more beneficial for the high speed corners. But you can also do it mechanically. And this is a big part of the reason why, you know, Mercedes went to a, a, a push rod rear suspension as well. And guess these things are interconnected. We can't perfectly disentangle them. But there's the pure mechanical part of it, of the car being able to manage the load and the contact patches to be able to maximize grip. And then there's the aerodynamic stability platform question, which is how stable is your platform? How repeatable is it that you're avoiding those you know, stalls that uh, Trumpets was talking about? So these things are all interconnected. And I can confirm you know, through investigation, Mercedes has moved the cockpit rearward um, to an extent um, uh, as, as per what, what Lewis requested. They're probably going to do that anyway because they moved the upper side impact structure, as Trumpets mentioned. But it's not quite as far back as Red Bull, but it's still pretty far back. Well, and, and this, this is where I love, and, and people are like, why, why are you so interested in this? Because aerodynamics engineering is not my field, really. Um, and I get interested in weird stuff. But to me, the 
the dance of the mechanical grip and the mechanical physical center of gravity with the aerodynamic pressure throughout the entry and mid and exit of a turn is just like, it's amazing to me how the engineers manage that. So the drivers have, they do have something that they, they feel they can lean on and trust because, you know, even if you've even been in a car, you, you know what it's like to be in an unstable vehicle at, at a, in a, in a turn. It can be very disturbing. And the, the idea that you can sit down and work this out. And this to me, like, I'm, I'm curious, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to push Bryce in here. We've seen Mercedes fail pretty hard with their concept the last two seasons. But one of the things that people don't really talk about a lot um, is that one of the main reasons they did was because their modeling tools, CFD and wind tunnel to real life, their, their clutches, I guess you might call them, or their tricks to try and match them all up, really failed them at the ride height levels they were thinking they needed to run. And I haven't heard anyone at Mercedes talk about fixing this, but if I had a concern, it would be that they have, they never quite figured out why they weren't able to get those numbers to match up in real life the way that they expected them to. Yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I think everyone looks at CFD and they think of it as a, as a virtual wind tunnel. And that's sort of the end of the story. It's just, you know, you, you give me a geometry, you give me boundary conditions and I'll give you a solution. But the thing is, there's never one solution. And there's always many types of solutions. And especially in flows with turbulence, there are empirical constants that are implicit in the way the solver is running to begin with. It actually is doing things to be able to model the turbulence in a computationally efficient way that are fundamentally altering your solution, number one. Number two, a lot of times when you're doing CFD, you're doing CFD with rigid geometries. Sure, you can change the orientation of the car, the pitch angle, the roll, you can do some other fancy things, but fundamentally you're not allowing the geometry to, to flex like a real car would flex. It bends and it, it stretches, the floor edges go down. So there are all kinds of non-linearities that you would see in a real car that you can't necessarily replicate exactly in, in a wind tunnel or in a, in a safety model. And even in a wind tunnel, you can't do it because you'd, you'd break the model if you tried to replicate porpoising on, on a belt in a, in a wind tunnel. So you have to rely on some degree of modeling, some degree of engineering judgment to be able to actually predict what the real car performance is. Yes, they have very expensive tools and very talented engineers, but there's always going to be a gap between the model and reality no matter how high the fidelity is. And, and we can obviously get onto Red Bull and their, their car on that subject shortly, I think. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Matt, before the show, you said one of your favorite bits of this time of the season is the ability to speculate wildly. And obviously yes. one bit of the car that we haven't seen anything of yet, and hopefully we never see anything of, is the floor a very key component. What do we think will be Mercedes' focus this year on the floor? Obviously, in Monaco, we had a good look at the Red Bull floor and there was a lot of intricacy there. Do you think that's an area that they will have focused on over over the winter? Uh, yeah, and you know, just based on discussions that I followed last season, I would... Uh, there seemed to be sort of um, fundamentally when you're talking about the floor... It, depending upon where you exit the air that's not going back to the diffuser, you sort of are picking, I'm going to be better in slow speed, or I'm going to be better in medium high speed. It's possible, because uh, we've not seen the underside, they may have decided they could get more out of moving where they decided to be good. Those, those sort of side tunnel exits is what I'm talking about, Bryson, who probably could put a much better technical spin on it than I can here. But really where we saw the most uh, rapid development was along the floor edge. And because it's a rapid developing thing, I, I kind of actually ignored it because I just assume it's going to change very rapidly for optimization because it's one of the easiest things for them to, to update. So I'm, I'm not really concerned about the floor. I would rather focus on the fact they have an entirely new gearbox and rear suspension um, because they have not only not only did they redesign that, they also redesigned the chassis. And this is one of the things I think Allison said in in an interview was that 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 comes at a pretty big cost to the team. So it's going to be challenging for them to manage resource across the season, development wise, because they have had a pretty big spend up front to do this. So sure. one thing we might not see as much from them is a super rapid pace of development. They're going to have to be kind of like Red Bull was last year. They're going to have to really pick their shots where they think the lowest and ripest fruit is hanging across the season in order to keep up with their rivals. Sure. So let's get into the gearbox then. So what, what's going on with the gearbox? For a layman like me, a gearbox is a gearbox, right? What can they really change on that? Oh, uh, well, it's dimensional. Uh, I believe they've shortened it. And that, in turn, has allowed them to essentially invert how their suspension at the rear was implemented. Before, it was a pull rod suspension. Now it's a push rod, which has the advantage, um, at least in the front, of being much easier to alter. So like during during practice... Um, it, it's easier to make adjustments, uh, costs less time, but I think it also gives better aerodynamic characteristics to the rear for this type of ground effect regulation. But importantly, it might, it will allow them, I think, to perhaps pursue some of the similar, uh, solutions that Red Bull has been implementing, which nobody really knows exactly what they are. And I'll be honest, like... I love suspension, but man, do I not know a ton about it practically in real life, about how it goes together and how they manipulate it to get the kind of stability, especially Red Bull, which looked both compliant and incredibly stable 
I know there's anti-squat and there's anti-dive that you can use, but like how you practically implement it and why like say a shorter gearbox would be more advantageous. Well, it just gives you more room in your chassis in general to like do things, move your cockpit rearwards. Surely they would have made the gearbox as small as possible the first time around, right? I mean, that, that is true to an extent, but the question is how much do you prioritize it? As, as Trumpets mentioned, this is expensive. I mean, do you, do you want to spend a huge amount of time making your gearbox smaller if you think that you could spend that time and money on changing the floor design or changing something else? I mean, these, these decisions have to be made, and I think perhaps the weighting factors for the importance of each one of them may actually be what's, what's changed over time. As, as we said before, the ability to have a, a push rod rear suspension, it does allow you to have a different mounting of, of, um, of the central suspension on, on the gearbox, but it gives you more real estate to, to do things not only with tightening up the back end of the car, but for room for the diffuser. How big can the diffuse, diffuser be? Um, there, so there's a whole host of things that are related to the gearbox. It's, again, it's not just a mechanical component. It's, it's structural. Everything else is bolted to it. This is not like a, a GT car with a frame and you put an engine and everything else, you know, and bolted to the frame, every piece is bolted to the next piece. You have the monocoque and the engine is bolted to that. And then the gearbox is bolted to that. And the suspension is bolted to the gearbox. I mean, it's all connected. So these things are, are very complex. One small note I would make about the floor design with Mercedes shift to a more traditional side pod design and a more uh, obvious sort of stagnation region, and flow that would be directed more outboard, uh, closer to the, the front of the floor. That should help your extraction. It should help you load the front of the floor a little bit better than some of the older traditional zero pod designs should be. And also, as far as the underside of the floor, which we can't see and hope we never see, um, it would be better to have a slightly higher roof to the floor than you might otherwise be able to get away with for regulation's sake. Yes, if you minimize a gap between the floor and the ground, you can accelerate the flow as much as possible. Great. But if you accelerate it too much, you're going to be prone to separating the flow under the floor <clears throat> and having this, this porpoising problem that if you don't have the right suspension, the suspension can't fix either for you. So maybe you know backing off on the, the floor height a little bit, maybe take away the peak downforce a tiny amount, but make it much more robust so that the drivers have a predictable platform to work with. Again, it's just like that narrow band rather than going for peak and then having really big peaks and really big troughs. Being able to keep it in a much narrower range gives a much more predictable uh, characteristic to the car, especially as you're changing speeds, which is what happens in turns, which is why I think you see half the team saying, oh, yeah, well, we want to make the car easier to drive. And what they mean by easier to drive is exactly what Bryson was just talking about. Just a predictable platform throughout the entry uh, phase, especially of any turn, high or, or low speed. And uh, stressed member was like one of the first engineering terms I learned. So thank you for talking about the structural aspect of the gearbox. And that is one of the reasons why it is so expensive to redevelop the, the it's really the casing that they redevelop, the gears go inside it. Because it, it's not, it, because it is structural as well. So all your mounting points, all of that has to be rethought and re-engineered. And it's a lengthy process and it's not cheap. I genuinely did not know that. I didn't know that they were all integrated that tightly, which I guess makes sense when you're when you're looking for every uh, 0.0001 of a second, it makes sense that everything's packaged so tightly. So thank you. That's very interesting. Matt, you obviously mentioned James Allison's name there. 
Um, he is. This is his first time in this rule set creating a car from scratch, I believe. And Bryson, obviously, we had a chat about him last year when he took over the role of technical director again. Just wondering if you've seen any fingerprints of his in this car, perhaps that we wouldn't have seen in previous iterations of um, this ground effect era that suggests that maybe he's beginning to have a bit more of a say on, on what's going on. You know, it's it's interesting because my understanding of what James uh, James Allison is really doing in Mercedes is not designing right now. He he's not a an Adrian Newey type figure, you know, with the slider rules out and on the blackboard and drawing um, suspension geometries. He is the brain, so to speak, getting every part of the car to talk to every other part of the car allowing the most optimal use of resources and inspiring people to be bold and to be daring in ways that are not reckless, but also not too conservative either. And so it would be difficult to say, aha, this design feature, that's a, that's an Allison feature. This other one, that's an Allison feature. I don't think it's quite uh, as, as abrupt as that. I think it's a little bit more subtle. If I see a car that is, is well integrated, that follows a, a coherent concept front to back, it's all kind of working together and it makes sense and it was ready on time and didn't have other problems. That's kind of what I see. The reality of the situation is the lap time, the, the stopwatch determines how good a car is and how much of, a, of an influence uh, you know, James has had. But I have every confidence that he is the right person for that job and the best possible foot forward that Mercedes could put forward, they are putting forward. And I'm very excited to see what they've actually come up with. And, and I would just tag on to that, that it, like even at Red Bull, Nui, although his influence is vast and his presence is important, does almost no designing of that car anymore. Very, very little. And I think for Allison, um, it's really more of a leadership and a priorities rule, because if you let every department design to their, to what they consider the optimal, you have a car that you couldn't even screw together. Mm. So at every stage, the compromises have to be made in order to have a car that works and, and can be manufactured and put together. And that's, that's where someone who's been around for a very long time, who's been through good times and bad times, can sort of cut through a lot of the, uh, shall we call it leaf level confusion or tree level confusion, have a look at the forest and say, nah, let's do it this way because I know it's just going to be less trouble down the road and give us more room to optimize later on. And, and I think that's why he came back because I don't know, Bryson, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I think the first two years of this regulation set, there was, a, there was an internal war going on in the engineering department. And this may be the first design where we've sort of had everyone pointed entirely in the same direction. I, I think there was a lot of internal strife that, you know, Mercedes did a very good job of downplaying and not letting it into the public. But if you look at what happened last season with starting with the zero pod and then going to the other design, that doesn't happen unless you have some very different unreconciled ideas floating around in your engineering department. Well, that, that could be true. I mean, the one thing I will say is, you know, in the court of you know mother nature there's no appeal right if you if you think even if you have a coherent design and everyone's on the same page and you say this <laughs> this is our solution we're going to go race it let's go see what happens and you just are are discovered to say no this is some fundamental aspects of of what we've built are are not correct 
then you have to make changes drastically, whether or not everyone's on the same page um, in terms of their design direction. But in, in terms of James and, and him leaving for that short period, I know that he loves being technical director more than anything in the world. But he, he was almost he loved it so much, he almost wanted to give someone else an opportunity to do it. Because every year that he was technical director was the year that someone else couldn't be technical director. And at least in his uh, interview, I think it was F1 Beyond the Grid or on the F1 podcast, he had mentioned he wanted to give someone else an opportunity to do that particular job just to you know have someone else have a go. But the thing is, he's the guy. <laughs> he, he is the guy for that, for that role in this time in the, in the career of the company. And I'm glad he committed to them long term. Absolutely. Uh, talking about encouraging people to be bold and, and not necessarily designing, but sort of um, manifesting the team as a whole. We've obviously spoken about the the vortex and the front wing. Do you think there's something behind that? I, I, I think what you're saying, Matt, about there maybe being some internal strife is really interesting over the over the last few years because... I think people have been shocked about how developed this concept is. I think people knew Mercedes were going to go for something new, but I think people are shocked about actually, when you look at it, the detail in the car really is there, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, you shouldn't be uh, too surprised. And and as much as it is developed, I, I think Bryson would probably agree with me. <clears throat> I, I would expect to see some uh, side pod updates because uh, aside from the inlet, they, they look... Uh, pretty standard. So so these may be something that allows them to validate the overall concept, but I would expect to see uh, some some new some new shapes on the car in fairly short order. What sort of shapes are you thinking? Some... <laughs> well, if you, if you just go back and look at say the development of um I don't know, uh, the Alpine side pods across the previous season. You can see how they started out with sort of a basic shape and then then they'll add secondary sculptural shapes as as they figure out how to better optimize the flow into and around and and extract air for cooling and such such like. And oh my gosh, I should speak about this. Talk about a thing that we don't know. Um, and this is a bit of a non, uh, a bit of a departure, but I, I read an interview with Matt Harmon, where at Alpine, of course, they have the problem of an engine that's twenty to thirty brake horsepower less than everybody else's. But he talked a lot about being able to reduce drag by managing the mass airflow inside the car with internal ducting and with exhaust shape to help the power unit out. And that's a whole other area that I mean, you think the floor is hard to get a picture of. And this has also been a loophole very much that Red Bull exploited last year because you're allowed to test those internal structures as much as you like. There's no testing restriction on them from an aerodynamic point of view. And Red Bull absolutely made hay with that last season. So these are areas where we might expect to see Mercedes, again, um, uh, making leaps forward that, that just simply won't be visible to us. Okay, so we've had it, it's come up quite a lot already, the elephant in the room. We've said about Red Bull, we've talked about Adrian Newey. We're recording this on Saturday, Red Bull released their car last uh, yesterday evening. What do we think, guys? What do we think? Well, first of all, let me just give Red Bull credit for doing something that they have been averse to for the past couple of years, which is showing us at least some part of a new car Very true. Uh, at, at their launch. You know, I, I have bemoaned quite publicly their refusal to do this for several years. In 2022, they showed us an FIA show car and called it the RB18 to our face. You know, that was very frustrating. 
Um, and then last year they showed kind of like a, an RB18 type of car, but, but certainly a real F1 car um, at their launch, but it wasn't the new car, right? Now we're actually seeing parts of a new car. Now, there can certainly be a debate had about what fraction of this car is real, how much of it we will see in Bahrain. Is there any part of it that's deliberately misleading as opposed to simply being hidden like a, like a floor edge? And also, we can't even say with certainty how many inlets are in their side pod right now, right? <laughs> I mean, th- th- there are some uh, radical things going on uh, with the RB20 that we are learning from you know, sneaky pictures and you know, 3D models being rendered in a certain way, see certain things. But what's an overarching theory that I've seen or overarching theme that I've seen is there are certainly design inspirations that they have at, at Red Bull that are from the Mercedes W14. The, the most conspicuous ones at the launch was the engine cover with the deep gullies and that. That was, it was very, very W14-esque. Yes, Aston Martin and McLaren have some gullies in their engine cover, but nothing as deep and crazy as Mercedes. And Red Bull has taken that a step further. So it's clear where the design inspiration is. But also, I mentioned we don't know how many inlets the uh, the sidepod has. There, there appear to be two, and one of them is vertical, rectangular, in a high aspect ratio, in a very similar position to uh, what the W14 had at launch spec. And again, remember what, what Trumpet said, the upper side impact structure could not be moved, you know, as a function of the zero pop philosophy. And even as they tried to change the car around, they couldn't change that side impact structure because there's testing involved to make sure that the car is safe for drivers. But what was interesting is that having that side impact structure where it was and keeping the inlet where it was made that overbite sort of shape with the Mercedes. And it, it looks like Red Bull has done that. It's almost like they've looked at a mistake that Mercedes has made and you saw, thought to themselves, actually, I didn't know you could do that. I might actually do stuff like that for our design. So, yes, Red Bull has certainly not been conservative with their car. I know there's many quotes floating around about Nui saying it will be an evolution. It will be an evolution. No. <laughs> this, is, this is not an evolution. They have not been conservative. I think they've been very bold with this. And frankly, it's a risky decision to make. Sure. They've, they've, just, they've taken the most successful Formula One car for a given season in history, and they have made fundamental changes to it, and they're going to make more fundamental changes, according to Autosport, revealing they're going to make more upgrades to make it more like Mercedes. But they believe there's performance to be had there, but there is an inherent risk in doing that. I'm not going to say they could fall in the same trap that Mercedes did, but this question of tools and how good your correlation is, how good your CFD is, that's not a universal thing. CFD tools aren't equally good at predicting all types of fluid flows. So maybe you've gotten everything you needed out of your, your tools thus far, but trying this new concept could expose a, a weakness. It, it's a very interesting development. And this is why we're talking about it. And Matt, I'll come to you now. We're not just talking about Red Bull because we like talking about Red Bull or we hate talking about Red Bull, but we're talking about them because there is a, a bit of me just a tiny little bit that has a bit of hope that maybe they might just fall into the same pitfalls that Mercedes did with this very audacious attempt at, um, if we can call it a zero pod design, probably not just yet, but potentially. Not, not, not just yet, but, not but just we'll yet. see what they come up with afterwards. It, in Japan, I think, is the talk. But Matt, is is there a chance? Could they get it wrong? Could they be, uh, could they be falling into the same sort of traps? 
Well, anyone could get it wrong. And of course, we love to hate to talk about Red Bull, which is why we do talk about them so much. But yeah, it's pretty hilarious to see the W14 turn up over in uh, Milton Keynes there. <laughs> um, what I love about this is it, I think, in a lot of ways, validates the basic concept that Mercedes had. In other words, Red Bull wouldn't have done this unless they saw similar numbers to what Mercedes were seeing, because the, uh, clearly the numbers Mercedes saw made them think that they were absolutely going to be dominant. But let's also remind ourselves where they ran into trouble, which is essentially their description of the program, was that they had to be able to run that concept. And this is the full zero pod concept now I'm discussing. They had to be able to run that concept at an incredibly low ride height in order for it to be successful. And that was before they changed the diffuser and floor edge rules for, for last season. Um, but when they ran it at the heights, they needed it to get the numbers they wanted. They also experienced extreme discontinuities and porpoising. So the real question is, what makes Red Bull think what tools, what suspension tricks, and what uh, resonance tricks do they have for managing the problems they're going to, and they, they will have to encounter if they run at that ride height to get those numbers? Why do they think they have a tool or a trick that will let them get away with it fully? And I don't have an answer to that. And that has been the singular question from the start of this regulation set. Red Bull clearly has found something that lets them manage uh, porpoising and bouncing that's sort of inherent to this, to, to this regulations that nobody else has quite managed to figure out. Yeah, I, I think we don't talk enough about how important of a, of a secret sauce Mercedes, or excuse me, Red Bull's suspension is. And if we talk about the one thing that we know for sure Adrian Newey had a hand in from the very beginning of his regulation cycle is the suspension on the Red Bull. And even if Red Bull adopts something that looks exactly like the W13, for example, and unlocks ungodly amounts of lap time because of it, that's not to say that that concept was the, the only right concept to have from the very beginning. It means that it's more than more than just the side pod being important, but also the suspension working together. If you have a, an amazing side pod, even floor design, but the suspension can't handle it, it won't work. Or vice versa, if you have a great suspension and, and, and terrible side pods, it's, it won't work. So it seems like, again, I don't want to say hubris is, is the cause of a potential downfall, but Red Bull seems to think they can do something that Mercedes cannot uh, with their car and they have bet actual hardware on it. This isn't something they're just doing CFD tests on and, and wind tunnel anymore. I mean, they've built it, that, that's their car. And so that means that they are very, very confident in it. And so I, I do suspect that if they are successful, and again, they may not be, but if they are successful, the suspension is gonna be a huge part of that, as well as the floor design, which we know are areas that they're very good at to begin with. It's gonna be fascinating. It's gonna be fascinating, I really can't wait. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we're a couple of days away from winter testing. What should we, as Mercedes fans, be keeping an eye on? Uh, well, I always say the the fun part is is yelling about fast lap times, but the reality is reliability. The one thing you want to look for more than anything else is how many laps per day per driver, because that that determines everything else. And I I don't expect Mercedes to do anything other than validate, validate, validate. And then maybe on the third day, they might try a couple of fast laps. They're going to run a billion laps and they're going to have to provide a huge amount of data because don't forget this being so new for them, they're essentially a year and a half uh, worth of development on this concept behind their rivals. So what they need more than anything else is numbers for them to start really understanding where they can go to optimize this. And when you say validate, what do you mean? Do you mean that they will have some sort of benchmark figures from the wind tunnel and from their CFD that they need to be hitting? Yeah, and Bryson touched on this earlier, that in order to get your CFD to work, and even in the wind tunnel, the numbers you get aren't going to be the same as you see on a real car, on a real track, for a whole variety of different reasons. In a wind tunnel, you have an enclosed space, you have limits to how you can run uh, run the car and yaw, you don't necessarily, you can't always account for wind gusts and things like that. So, So there's little things. Uh, but then there's also big things. It's only a 60% model. You have to scale. You have full-size air molecules, but you have a 60% model, uh, 60% model that you're running in the wind tunnel. So you have to make mathematical adjustments to predict what you're going to see on track. And the same is true for CFD. And then the CFD has to be altered based on what you get in the wind tunnel, because that's considered to be, I guess, that you try and harmonize those. And then you put it on track to see if what you see on track agrees with what you've seen in the other two. And then you use that information from the track to go back and adjust the numbers that you get from your CFD and your wind tunnel to try and make them more accurate. Now, I'm not an engineer and I've never actually engaged in this process. This is my overall understanding of how it works and why it's so tricky. And so when you have a new concept like this, where everything is different, where I have a new suspension, and, and, and then there's a whole mechanical design side of it as well, where they're going to be looking at, you know, resonance and through the, cha- through the chassis, where you can get vibrations that need to be controlled. And, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago in the last regulations, Austria, you, you, they ran on the curbs and then they had all kinds of problems because you get sort of this natural resonance where at a certain frequency, everything will vibrate extra. There's more energy going through. It'll amplify the energy going into the chassis. And then that causes huge problems with your electrics and affects the timing. But it it becomes a problem. And all of that has to be evaluated because they have a new chassis. They have a new gearbox design. They have an entire new rear suspension. But mostly the aerodynamics they just need as many numbers as possible over these three days. So the more laps they get in, the more reliable this car is, the better of a start they're going to get off to, regardless of their initial competitiveness. And that's really always been the one thing to look at. You don't even have to pay super attention to it. You just look at the lap totals at the end of the day and you can figure out who's had a good day and who's had a bad day. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And people sometimes get caught up in lap times and in, in testing 
<clears throat> it's never going to be the case that everyone shows their real pace. And it's never going to be the case that the fastest car is going to be the fastest car in, in, in the first uh, race or, or the slowest car is going to be slowest. Reliability is one of the most important things. But one thing you can't fake is body language of a car. Even if you put a ton of fuel in the car and you turn the power settings down, oversteer is oversteer and understeer is understeer. If the balance of the car is wrong, it will show up. We, we could tell this right from the very first laps in 2021 with Mercedes. You know, we could tell right away that the car that they built was going to need some work to, to be competitive. You know, Lewis spinning, uh, I think more than once perhaps, um, and, and, you know, problems there that could not be hidden just by running at lower power modes. But for now, so we hope you enjoy learning about you the innovative want to make sure you look and exciting actually, glimpses we'll see in W15 actually watch before practice, it hits the track. Watch the drivers go through the corner, see how they feel about it. Are they locking up constantly going into turn 10? Are they oversteering? Are they having snaps in turn 11 and turn 12 at the high speed? You can get a feel for what the car is doing relative to what the driver expects the car to be able to do, uh, even if they're not running the lap times as fast as they could. So I highly recommend watching testing. I also recommend watching testing because you get a lot of uh, tech things and a lot of conversational things over eight hours of, of testing you know, per day. There's a lot of things you can pick up and learn about of the car and Formula One in general by listening to that uh, broadcast. Sure, guys. It's been really, really fantastic chatting to you. Thank you so much to both of you for your time. Let's see how, uh, how testing goes. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Well, that was a really interesting chat with Mass and Bryson on the W15 and one that certainly left me feeling at least a little bit more optimistic about the season ahead and the work that Mercedes have been doing behind the scenes. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week, but we'll be back next Wednesday with another episode after we've seen the W15 on track in winter testing. See you then.